you do like the feeling of power you have as a newspaper proprietor of being able to sort of formulate policies for a large number of newspapers in every state of Australia? Well, there's only one honest answer to that, of course, and that's yes. Of course one enjoys the feeling of power. The newspaper can create great controversies, stir up uh, arguments within the community, discussion, it can throw light on injustices, just as it can do the opposite. It can hide things uh, and be a great power for evil. It's not a perfect system, obviously, but can you think of a better one? Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Murdocracy, the podcast that keeps an eye on the news and influence of News Corp, the most influential media company in the Western world. I'm Cam Wilson. And I'm Sammy Shaw. Hey, Sammy, how are you going? Did you get booted off any podcast this week? Uh, it's really weird. I was going to be talking to Jessica Rowe about how about my love life and, and all the relationships I have. And then um, all these, uh, you know, these social, you know, identity politics warriors said that it was the wrong thing for her to do to put me on. And so, I don't know, I was, I was going on in my um, persona as uh, Pauline Hanson, I sometimes <laughs> cosplay as a right-wing politician. So I think maybe that's what went wrong. <laughs> Cancel culture claims yet another <laughs> life. Oh, man. At this point, cancel culture claims more lives than COVID does. <laughs> we need to get to a uh, cancel culture zero uh, policy. Um, it's, <laughs> suppression isn't enough. We have to eliminate it. Yes, exactly. We need a cancel culture vaccine is what we do need. <laughs> this week, we're going to be talking to Jeff Dembicki. He is a US-based investigative climate reporter who we actually mentioned his work briefly last week about how News Corp executives had been doing one thing on climate change while their top personalities had been saying another. We'll get Shock, into that. Shocking and, 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 and awing, yes. <laughs> and some pretty interesting stuff that came out of it in terms of what this means about uh, you know how the company works, some of the potential rifts in the family. So it's a great chat. But first, we're going to get on to the News Corp News of the Week. All right, let's do this. In research on Australian news websites about their disinformation risk, news.com.au has come out as one of the websites with the lowest risk. The Global Disinformation Index looked at 34 Australian news websites and found that news.com.au came out second after SBS and before the ABC, and also in the top 10 were the Herald Sun, the Courier Mail, and the Daily Telegraph, from all from News Corp. Um, Steve Jones from Mumbrella, who wrote this up, said these publications, according to the researchers, performed almost perfectly on content. Most articles are neutral and unbiased, carry bylines and headlines which match the story's contents and do not negatively target groups or individuals. Sammy, does this result surprise you? I yeah, look, I'm gonna admit, yes, it does. But at the same time, it also made me question certain base assumptions. You know, like you have that conversation with people sometimes who say the ABC is a left-wing news organization, and you go, well, yes, but every time we've done independent investigations into the ABC's, bi- you know, any bias within the ABC, we've found time and time again that the ABC has proven its unbiased nature. Maybe the idea that news corp publications are right-wing bias or source of disinformation has become such a such a uh, uh, you know 
completely believed uh, truth without any actual analysis that this is shocking. Or maybe it's the fact that uh, this organization that did the research, which is Queensland University of Technology's Global Disinformation Index, comes out of Queensland and automatically is idiotic. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, Look, as, you know, say, as you know, I have a famous uh, a dislike of the state of Queensland. I'm just uh, I'm kidding. For, I'm kidding. For, for, for opposition and balance sake, I love the people of Queensland. We value mm. your listenership very much. <laughs> I, I I would like to dig down into mm. these into this a little bit more, but I do think that this kind of reminds us that there are many parts of News Corp that do legitimately good work, and you know, out of all of them, you know, News com.au, which is one of Australia's most read uh, news websites, yes. does do, you know, is a lot more hardline on things like climate change. It definitely does have like some of the tabloidier a- aspects of it, you know, some of the celeb stuff, etc. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that that's not really, you know, the the kind of super like harmful and hardcore stuff. Um, And I did notice that the Australian wasn't in the the, the top most reputable or I guess least at risk of having disinformation um, but yeah I, th- I think it does I think you're right kind of you know let's temper somewhat our kind of takes on them that you know there are plenty of bad takes but on the whole it, you know they, they, they are doing good work I think the difference here is people forget quite often that the opinion column or the opinion section of a newspaper is not the entire newspaper. And and the stuff that ends up going viral, the stuff that ends up being read the most and, and you know, causes the most fury and outrage tends to be the opinion section. So if you pick up the Herald Sun, yes, Andrew Bolt's column is in there, but largely the Herald Sun is reporting on press conferences, on public events, on just, you know, news reports, things like that. Yes, they might have the front page will have a salacious headline, but majority of the pages of the Herald Sun will just be your average, you know, what's going on in a metro newspaper kind of stories. Uh, but that's not what people remember. They remember Andrew Bolt's column. And so this is a good reminder that, you know, the newspaper is not the opinion column and the opinion column is not the newspaper. There's just a tiny portion of a newspaper or a magazine or a news channel. Yeah, that's true. But my question is, do most people know that? And does that kind of like Mm. artificial separation actually work in reality? Because, you know, you you see, like, for instance, when most people see something from the Daily Telegraph, which has a lot of opinion writers and a lot of news writers, there's no distinction in your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed when something's opinion. You know, both look very similar. They're both from dailytelegraph.com.au. Often that, you know, the headlines can be quite similar as well. So when you see something, you you see something presented as a kind of balanced news article Mm. that looks identical to what a, you know, by its nature, an unbalanced opinion article is and vice versa. The idea that there's kind of a separation, you know, that, that used to happen when you had, you know, when people used to, I know they still do, but mostly used to use physical newspapers where your opinion was separated from your news. Yes. That just doesn't happen anymore. Exactly. In, in, in how people actually consume it. Well, there was a, it's, it's, I'm going to get a bit um, unnecessarily academic here, but you know, no, when, 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 when I was studying, when I was studying you know, in university, we were studying postmodernism. And one of the big highlights of postmodern um, developmental in, in thought and postmodern thought was the moment when Life magazine and these kind of magazines in the 50s, 50s and 60s 
you know, started doing things like they'd have a, a, a page, you know, a, an art series of uh, photographs of major works of art. And they'd have one page where they'd have a Picasso and right next to it would be a picture of, uh, you know, Marcel Duchamp's fountain, which is an, a urinal turned upside down. And the idea that you could place in a gallery, these two pieces would be in separate sections. But in a magazine, there's two pages pressed right next to each other, which places them on the same level, uh, became a major controversial thing in terms of intellectual thought and, and stuff like that. And I think we're seeing the same thing now with social media, or not social media, but like online news sourcing. When you go to Facebook, you know, you're, you're as likely to see a headline from a journalist, you know, who's written a well-researched article about a certain subject, you know, using sources, using all of the, the tools that a good journalist has at hand. And you're also going to see an opinion column from another, from an editorial columnist or just from a a celebrity columnist or someone like that with no journalistic integrity behind it, with no journalistic ethos behind it and no journalistic requirements for it to be factual. And they're presented to you in the same Facebook feed. And like you said, they're both coming from heraldsun.com.au or telegraph.com.au. And so in our brains, we don't make the distinction anymore that one is opinion and one is journalism. We see them both as journalism. And, and therefore, I think we judge it wrongly. And something like this, the research by um, the Global Disinformation Index, is a good reminder that uh, the things we think are biased are not as biased as, they think they, as we think they are. Yeah. Uh, the the one thing that I also kind of wanted to mention in that is when you peel back the curtain of how news organizations work, mm. you know, we, we, there is a there is a drive for attention and for clicks. That's true. Not at the cost of everything, as sometimes people say, oh, they're just writing a news article to get clicks. Well, no, sometimes it's just, you know, a news thing. But opinion really is kind of essential to the business model of a lot of online journalism for two reasons. Mm-hmm. One, it gets reaction. You know, people say, you know, when you say something controversial or when you take an opinion on something, that's something that people care about, they click about, they share. Um, but the other thing is that opinion is very easy to produce. You don't need to do an investigation. You don't need to, you know, put the hours into, you know, being a journalist who hits the sidewalks or Mm -hmm. who's pulling documents or, or doing all this other work. You can just make something up. That's what an opinion is. You know, very often it's like, I saw this and I think this. That kind of, uh, I guess, you know, high results, but low, you know, not very resource intensive, um, I guess, part of the company in the end, actually ends up subsidizing some of the other work. Yes. But it is kind of... And so that's why we do it. But it, it but I do think that, it, like, you know, we have this in, inherent tension where um, if people are seeing them as the same thing... And I, I know people, at the end of the day, you know, most people I do think understand the difference between news and opinion, but they do think that opinions kind of represent the paper in some kind of way. I do actually think that, like, uh, that if we were really, you know, as, as the media really concerned... About about you know trying to be above reproach or trying to be reputable we would actually separate them out more we would actually not have them in the same publication but because it is such a core part of the business model we we just need to keep on doing it and i think ultimately that kind of hurts the credibility of journalism it'll be interesting to see whether you know we will get to a place where papers will make that distinction by splitting up the two sections more but uh, I'm, I'm not holding my breath so on to the next topic News Corp is uh, doing pretty well and that money is burning a hole in its pocket. 
The AFL's Miranda Ward reports that News Corp CEO Robert Thompson, an Australian, is mm-hmm. keeping an eye out for any media companies to purchase as they announced they were spending a billion dollars buying back shares. Thompson said, we will be opportunistic as we have been when the right sort of company comes up at the right sort of price. So they're looking to expand. There are a few other interesting tidbits in this announcement. News Corp's James Madden reports on... This is pretty interesting. The details of the agreement between News Corp, and this is the US News Corp, and the Mm -hmm. Murdoch Family Trust. Uh, He said, under the agreement, News Corp and the Family Trust must avoid actions that would give the Trust and Murdoch family members more than 44% of the voting power of the company's Class B stock. The Trust's voting power must also not increase by more than 1.75% in any 12-month rolling period. Essentially, what that all means is that they're making sure that the Murdoch family can't have complete control of the company, which I found very interesting. Mm -hmm. And the, the final thing that was kind of that came out of this was... Um, Robert Thompson also said that Australian digital publications for News Corp in particular are doing pretty well. He said, we saw a 25% increase in digital subscribers at the mastheads in the fourth quarter while there was a healthy recovery in advertising. Clearly businesses are subject to the vagaries of the virus in Australia, but the robust recovery in recent months is a hopeful harbinger. So Sammy, to me, it sounds like business is booming. Business is booming. And if they're looking for stuff to buy, I mean, one option is they could maybe buy um, a whole bunch of these uh, uh, the regional newspapers that they shut down and maybe reopen those. They've got the money now, clearly. Another option is, I don't know if they're looking to buy any podcasts, but there's a really good podcast that looks into News Corp um, that I can recommend. Maybe a, few billi- <laughs> maybe a few billion dollars and we might be willing to negotiate. <laughs> totally, totally. Look, uh, you know, everyone has a price and my price for becoming <laughs> a unashamedly pro-Murdoch uh, podcast is surprising Low. <laughs> oh, it's shockingly low. I, I, I assure you that they, they, they would be embarrassed for me. It's how low that would be. But look, I don't know. We're living in a, in a time now where press conferences, premiers, you know, state premiers press conferences get the kind of viewer rating numbers that reality TV shows used to envy. So um, it's no surprise that, you know, all news channels are doing well. All newspapers are doing well. People are news obsessed at this point. And the fact that News Corp is benefiting from that is not really surprising at all. The thing that's interesting is the part where the, the limited control of the Rupert Murd- of the Murdoch Family Trust within News Corp. It kind of goes back to something that a lot of News Corp editors have said in the past, which is, you know, Rupert Murdoch does not have direct editorial oversight of our content. And sometimes, you know, having lived in a dictatorship, I can tell you, the dictator does not have direct you know, oversight over everything that happens in the country. Sometimes, you know, people just behave according to what they think will be the whims and the wishes of the dictator without actually consulting him. Um, and I think something like that is what takes place here. You know, the limited control of Murdoch um, Family Trust over the publications means that people are just doing stuff that they think he like versus things that he might actually tell them to do. Yeah, you don't you don't need fifty uh, percent or more to uh, to control what the company does. They are taking notes. Exactly. So we mentioned this just before, but when Jessica Rowe took down her podcast with Pauline Hanson this week, 
many people saw it as a win for the power of speech. Mm. You know, it's people debating who is allowed to have a platform. This is actually the proof that, you know, freedom of speech is working. It's the, the marketplace of ideas. That's what some people thought, but that wasn't what you saw on the pages of News Corp publications. Amanda Mead reported in The Guardian uh, that in an editorial headline, The Mob Wins Yet Again, The Daily Telegraph praised Hansen as humane. Hansen didn't add to Rose's stress. While I'm disappointed that Jess succumbed, she said yesterday, I understand why she pulled the episode. The most humane person in this episode was the target. And Chris Kenny went off on Sky News as well, calling it cancel culture. Sammy, to you, is this cancel culture in action? Man, what isn't cancel culture in action these days? <laughs> Here's the... Pro- okay, ah... <sighs> All right, so I'm gonna go. I'm gonna Where be to very start? honest here. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna be very honest here, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you what I think about this. I want to know what you think about this before we get into whether or not the, the media coverage of it is fair. I think in the end, Jessica Rowe, who is a person I'm not that familiar with, right? I didn't I didn't grow up in Australia, so I had to personally Google her um, to find out. And and I think she runs a podcast. This is not a mainstream media outlet. This isn't a TV channel. It isn't a, a, a you know. A newspaper article or something like that. It's a podcast and it's by, you know, yes, it's funded by Osterio, but still at the end of the day, podcasts are opt in things. Um, the first episode of the podcast is Carl Stefanovic. Anyone who's listening to a podcast about Carl Stefanovic's hopes and dreams is anyway a loser. Like, I, I don't care, <laughs> you know, what who you are, like, why on earth would you put that in your stupid ears? Um, the thing is, if she wants to interview Pauline Hansen, fine. That's her choice, and it is her podcast. If you don't like it, if you don't want it, don't listen to it. Now, yes, there's a whole argument to be made about normalizing Pauline Hansen. Guess what? Pauline Hansen's a parliamentarian. She's been a parliamentarian for a very long time. She's also been on Dancing with the Stars. She's also on all the TV channels. She was normalized ages ago. That's a battle we lost. Forget about that, right? So at this point, the targeting of a person who also very publicly has talked about uh, her, her mental health issues, which Jessica Rowe, um, it seems, has been a very vocal mental health advocate, has talked about her own struggles with depression and stuff. The way the people kind of went after her, I thought was short-sighted um, and I thought was extremely disappointing um, from a group of people who at this point should know better because we know how media narratives go. We know exactly what would have happened once she took the podcast down, which is exactly what did happen once she took the podcast down. And I personally don't think she should have taken the podcast down. It was her podcast. She should have stood behind it and said, look, I made a decision when I put her on. I, I She can maybe have been... I heard the episode and it's very, very... Um, complimentary to Pauline Hansen, and it does sound, there's a mild criticism of Pauline Hansen's policies at the start, but Jessica Rowe, it seems, as overall, doesn't seem Pauline Hansen as too problematic, and maybe that reveals more about Jessica Rowe than, than Jessica Rowe would have thought it revealed, etc., but this backlash, this whole thing of Pauline Hansen now is the victim, all that, we knew this would happen. We knew this is the way the direction goes. Maybe it's time to start thinking of a different way of having these conversations than this boring you know, completely going down the same path with exactly the same results every time approach. I have a completely different opinion. I really, really strongly disagree with yeah. that, that view. And the reason is because, so you mentioned how Pauline Hansen has been normalized. Mm-hmm. That's true. You know, she was, she's been on a lot of mainstream television. She was on Today Show and Sunrise for years and years and years. Yes. But 
she's actually not as much now. In fact, she was kicked off Nine's Today show when she made disparaging comments about the people in the Melbourne Melbourne Housing Commission towers that were locked down yes. in the pandemic last year. She called them, I think, alcoholics and drug addicts. Mm-hmm. She was kicked off after there was a backlash. That actually, to her is a big loss. That's a big loss of an audience who is significant and also probably not exposed to her views otherwise or you know may not be super politically engaged. Mm-hmm. For her that that's a big loss. She's running out of mainstream places to be on air. And although she may be normalized in the past, attitudes are changing. People are becoming more critical about who media cho- chooses to platform. And here's the thing. Pauline Hansen isn't going away. You know, like she, by, by kicking off the podcast, she is not going to not be in Parliament anymore. But she doesn't have the right to be in a podcast. And when people speak up and say, uh, Jessica Rowe, you know, on your podcast, which is featured, you know, Carl Stefanovic, Sophie Monk, like all these other softball um, guests, mm-hmm. when you bring on someone like Pauline Hansen and give her the most super sympathetic interview where you talk to her about love, about raising kids, where you don't actually re- mention any of the consequences of her action as a public figure, what you do is allow her to be a sympathetic character and you, you, you cut out the actual influence of her actions, which is that she has spent two decades vilifying and being and and making life difficult for many Australians. Yes. And I'm not going to call them, you know, people of colour. I'm not going to say immigrants because they're just Australians. Yes. She has made their life hell. I don't need to tell you that. You, of course, know that. But what we're seeing is people are more critical about who can be on air now. And they're saying, look, hey, Jessica wrote, if you want to have her on interview, they're not saying you can't. The criticism was the type of interview and what you got out of her. Pauline Hansen has had done a million softball interviews. She used to always be in, you know, those women's magazines, like you said before. She was on uh, Dancing with the Stars. We know just about everything there is to know about Pauline Hansen. Mm. This interview didn't tread any new ground. If there really was an interview that was, like, important, that kind of, you know, shone a, a, a new light on her or, or, or held her to account, I'm sure Jessica Rowe, as an established journalist, would have stood up behind it and said, yes, you know, I'm actually proud of this. But she didn't. She really didn't have anything to justify why she was giving a softball interview. And when she took it down, ultimately, it was a business decision. She saw that people were like, this sucks, you know, you're giving a free kick to someone who doesn't deserve a free kick. She could have kept it up. This is actually, to me, free speech in action. And I think it's... It, it, no, here's why I think it's mm-hmm. ultimately good. One, it sends a message that, you know, people don't want to see interviews like this with people that are uncritical, that give them, uh, you know, airtime without calling them on their response. That's probably a good thing. We demand more from our people. The second thing is, you know, the criticism of people saying, oh, look, we get this, you know, we get this media cycle of she gets invited on, then the podcast gets taken down, and then Pauline Hansen is a, you know, a, a, a victim of mm-hmm. cancel culture. The problem there, the, the people who cause that are not the people who spoke up and said that Pauline Hansen has caused me, my family, my people, other people I know, anguish, they've hurt them, they've made my life harder. Right. The person responsible for that is Jessica Rowe. And so I'm not like, personally, I don't blame the people who stood up and said, I don't, I find her views um, unacceptable. And I think the fact that you did this interview, which was a, a softball interview, uh, I think that's bad and you should take it down. I don't think they're responsible for that following media cycle. That follow, that falls completely on Jessica Rowe, an experienced journalist who's been in the game a long time. She should know better and she's ultimately responsible for that happening. Well, so look, there's the, you know, you can be cynical and say that Jessica Rowe 
did this on purpose to get the numbers or her producers came up with the idea and and regardless of the end result she's benefited right there's also the idea that you know if for example like i'll give you an example is that i didn't know about her podcast i didn't know who she even was until this whole story kind of came out um and and i think most people did not know her podcast even existed until this story came out so um i think that right there kind of shows you a little bit about sometimes drawing attention to something to damn it and to to condemn it does promote it more and there might be some you know a cynical approach to this might be to say that yes that on purpose entirely um i i i don't know i i just feel like at this point um the people who aren't when i'm not talking about people on social media for example you know who are uh, vocal about this stuff i'm not talking about people in in traditional media who are vocal about this stuff in the opposite direction i'm talking about the average person you know um who is watching all of this from afar who isn't a media personality um and i think you're going to find more of them tend to believe particularly you know non white australian uh, sorry white australians etc might end up believing that this is an example of cancel culture gone crazy or censorship than something as nuanced as what you've described and and i think you know you end up in that situation losing people um who might otherwise have been on the right side of the argument because of a a reaction to something that lacked nuance um but yeah i i don't know i feel like the way that this is kind of played out i was a bit i was a bit disappointed by how traditional all of it was and we can see that like you said with the with the response on news corp with the response and left versus right media etc and all the columns that were written about it the question is now um you know what happens who this point hansen capitalize on this and thus use it to get more attention um than if she had just had the podcast go up and no one would have cared yeah i i see what you're saying but i mean i, I still just think that like there are people out there who already believe cancer cultures run amok mm-hmm. they're already the people who are you know watching chris kenny every night and by the way if chris kenny didn't talk about point hansen he'd talk about i don't know cheese being renamed right that's exactly cancer culture yeah. like like they would always find something to be angry and upset about mm-hmm. then there's the people who already know that they don't like point hansen that they find her views unacceptable there are a lot of people in the middle who might actually be shaped and uh, and, and 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 influenced by the decision being like oh people are calling that unacceptable and actually yeah you know it kind of is so I, i'm i mean i don't know maybe i'm a bit more optimistic <laughs> maybe i'm maybe i'm being naive but i do think that there is an in, there is a positive effect of saying um this person who has said the most awful things about asians about muslims i don't think you know despite the fact that they're you know in parliament i don't think that they are someone who i want to platform on a, on a fairly ma- you know what what I, I mean jessica rose podcast isn't huge but you'd say it's pretty like she's a she's a professional journalist who's been in mainstream media for years it's about as establishment as you can get the fact that she was ultimately rejected from something like that i think sends a message about how modern society, how how normal and and mainstream Australians are becoming less likely to accept views like that. Mm. It sends a signal. All right. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, look, we we clearly we agree to disagree, but yes, I will <laughs> I will say that uh, the the media reaction though, I think we can both agree is fairly straightforward and standard and expected. Those are you know, there's a macro that you can work into MS Word at this point. You just press control <laughs> F3 and it'll write the Pauline Hansen was cancelled <laughs> and that was cancelled culture go on a mock article for you. 
And now for our new segment, Good News Corp, Bad News Corp, where we look at the best takes, the worst takes of the week, because we want to we wanna celebrate when they do do well and uh, give them a little kick when they don't. Mm-hmm. Sammy, this week you had a nominee for what you really liked. Indeed. Um, I watched the um, the uh, resignation of Gladys Berejiklian with the same kind of slack-jawed shock as everybody else did. Um, you know, Friday seemed to have escalated as a news day really suddenly. And um, the one thing that I found very disappointing across the board, and this isn't just a criticism of News Corp, it's a criticism of the ABC as well, it's a criticism of most mainstream news, was the lament, lamentations and the and the outpouring of grief for the loss of a premier of such great quality and standard and, and the kind of, you know, hashtag girl boss approach to all of this. And it seemed as though, honestly, looking at some media commentators talking, you'd think that, you know, Gladys Berejiklian has died tragically in a plane crash, as opposed to the fact that Gladys Berejiklian has just resigned because of an ICAC investigation. So it was refreshing to see Shannon Malloy write an article for news.com.au, which the headline is Gladys Berejiklian is popular and well-liked, so her resignation is sad, but don't cry for her. And, And basically Malloy's point in this entire thing is look, um, ICACs don't, you know, make, don't do this willy-nilly. They're not, they're, they're very, you know, his exact quote is, its decisions are precise, clinical really, and made only after meticulous examination of the facts. And the fact that Gladys Berejiklian hadn't resigned already, you know, in the past, when this first became an issue between her and Darren Maguire, shows that she is not a victim. In fact, stayed in a job way longer than she should have, and this isn't a mob behavior, but actually is responsible um, political oversight. And so I thought it was really refreshing to see an article like that coming, not from the ABC website, not from, you know, The Guardian or something like that, but from uh, the News Corp um, and News.com.au in particular, where it was well-reasoned, well-argued and very well, um, uh, you know, respectful of ICAC and its role. Yeah, good on you, Shannon. I thought it was um, was fair and good as mm-hmm. well. Now, uh, on the flip side of the <laughs> well, Gladys coverage... Well, there has to be balance, uh, right? <laughs> of course, of course. You have to represent all voices. And this voice was a lot more uh, critical of, of what happened yesterday. It is from The Australian, and it was an article by Yoni uh, Bashan, mm-hmm. who is the New South Wales political correspondent. And the headline is, Curse of ICAC Claims COVID Crusader Gladys. That is some... Classy alliteration right there. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, maybe they just did it for the alliteration. But the article really centers uh, Gladys's, um, her gripe that this investigation came at a really bad time for the state and, of course, her, which I just found to be a bit of a trash take. And and it kind of sums up the view that we've seen from a few people being like, well, like, you know, it's just an allegation and she's been such a good premier otherwise. And, you know, oh, I couldn't, like, couldn't, we're, the state is in a really tough um, moment. That, you know, that's all tr- true. You know, people think she's done a good job. It obviously is a tough time for, for New South Wales. But to to blame this, you know, essentially to point the finger at ICAC, the body that's supposed to investigate corruption, that's supposed to point out when politicians aren't being public servants, but actually, you know, using their powers to benefit themselves and people in their lives. Mm-hmm. Like, 
Like, that is an, like, that's what they should be doing. Like, they should be investigating people like this, no matter when it happens. That You know, there's never really a good time to have alleged corruption investigated if you were someone who's being accused. And to center this, this kind of, this, concern that um that you know essentially being like Gladys is very hard done by i i just i just find the whole response to this bizarre <laughs> like 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 I, I know new south wales estate politics has been a bit of a shit show and i know there's been a lot of corruption and i and i know that a lot of people are happy with the way that Gladys has uh, dealt with COVID in the state, mm-hmm. but for me, it's it's pretty much like you know, if you are a, a kind of if if you have been if if this accusation turns out to be true, even if you've just done a little bit of corruption and and the rest of you has been really good, it's a bit of a no starter for me. Um, look, I come from a country which is basically in the corruption world corruption index was always in the top three spots. You know, Pakistan is notorious for the level of corruption, and I can guarantee you, a little bit of corruption is a massive gateway to a lot of corruption. And mm. and the fact that we are now already we are at the point in Australia where someone being held to account for their corruption is seen as a problem and a failure of the system because that person's popular is is very much evidence of the rise of populist politics, the rise of populism, and a lack of oversight of corruption, which is probably the most damning thing politicians can do. Um, yeah, it's it's this entire thing for me was alarm bells ringing. You know, I've always maintained people from developing countries can see the fault lines in in developed countries a lot sooner because we know what happens when things go really bad. Um, and yeah, I, I can guarantee you, my my gaiji counter was was ringing. And now we're joined by Jeff Dambicki, who is a investigative climate reporter who has bylines in Vice and Rolling Stone and just wrote a really an, an article that caught my eye called Rupert Murdoch has known we've been in a climate emergency since 2006 documents show for Vice. Uh, Jeff, welcome and thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Jeff, first of all, before you found these documents, which are fascinating, what did you already know about News Corp's stance on the environment? Well, it's pretty hard to avoid the media reporting that News Corp does on climate change. So obviously being based here in New York, we're subjected to Fox News's coverage of climate change constantly and there's also the opinion pages of the wall street journal and i knew from reporting on climate change that in australia there was a lot of discussion over how media outlets like the australian had covered those terrible bushfires that you had in 2020 so i was quite familiar with news corp as pushing um a particular type of let's let's not mince words and just call it climate denial. <laughs> um, but in in approaching this story, I was I was just curious what some of the the corporate thinking was behind some of those positions on climate change, and then that led me to some sort of strange and surprising places. 
A lot of the uh, the information you found, which basically is information that points to the fact that News Corp, it turns out, is a lot more green as an as a corporation than you would assume it would be, um, is publicly available data, right? is publicly available filings and things like that. Um, how is it that it took so long for someone to even pick up on this information that News Corp is a bit hypocritical in, in the way it covers these issues? Yeah, it's it's weird, hey. Um, and and I I had no idea that News Corp, as as a corporation and internally, um, has been tracking its climate impact for over a dozen years, and in fact takes climate change very seriously. And I w- I was only clued off to this because I saw this strange interview that Rupert Murdoch had done in 2007 with an environmental outlet in the U.S. called Grist. And at the time, uh, Rupert Murdoch had decided that, in fact, you know, climate change was and, and is a very big deal. And he wanted to use the massive persuasive powers of his media empire to get ordinary people to change their behavior. And that included at the time he said he was going to approach some of the the famous Fox News hosts like Sean Hannity and ask them if they would be interested in doing more climate change coverage. And I thought, like, how how is this possible? This is like so contrary to absolutely like everything I know about um, News Corp media outlets. And and so when I when I looked a bit closer, I discovered that starting around 2006 or so, News Corp had been filing these disclosures about its positions on climate change to a group called the Carbon Disclosure Project. And so basically every year News Corp had said, this is, these are some of the risks we face from climate change. We've, we've quantified them. And these are the things we're doing to make the company more sustainable. And so News Corp was just filing these things every year as its own outlets started to get more and more confrontational in their climate denial coverage. And I think the reason that that nobody really reported on this stuff, even though it was all publicly available, is because these two different narratives about News Corp just don't seem compatible at all. Can you lay out some of those contradictions that you found? Like, I mean, the article is filled with them. What were some of the more galling examples of contradictions between what you found in these public documents and what some of the company's top stars were saying on air or in print? Yeah, well, one one of the things I the the really jumped out to me at first was with how News Corp um, internally was talking about Hurricane Sandy, which hit New York in 2012, called, caused all sorts of damage, resulted in deaths, and so at the time, um, the Wall Street Journal was publishing opinion pieces saying it's irresponsible to make the link between climate change and Hurricane Sandy. Scientists just don't know, and we shouldn't be talking about these things. It just politicizes a a tragedy. Um, But then when I looked at the disclosures that News Corp had filed the following year, so in 2013, the company specifically refers to Hurricane Sandy 
as a climate related disaster. And, and so that, that kind of shows you how the corporate side of things is thinking about climate change much differently um, than the side of News Corp the most people encounter. And, and this plays out across a whole number of events, including the Australian bushfires. Um, so as, as those were happening, as, as you and your, your listeners will know, um, Murdoch-owned outlets were pushing this narrative that a lot of the fires were, were lit by arsonists or were somehow the fault of environmentalists or progressive politicians. But internally, News Corp considered those fires to be definitely related to climate change. And the company went as far to say in one of its disclosures that it was actually holding safety trainings for its employees to make sure that they weren't harmed in these types of extreme events. One thing that I found um, particularly uh, noteworthy in in the kind of difference between the documents and their public facing stuff was the discussion around a carbon tax in Australia. That was a highly contentious topic that uh, you know um, was was really fought out in politics, but of course on the front of News Corp publications. Um, what did they say in their disclosures about this kind of policy? Um, well, I mean, that that part of it I found, you know, particularly fascinating. And, and I don't claim to be an expert on Australian politics by any means. Um, <laughs> but it, it, either. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it, it does seem clear hmm. that, um, you know, at, at one point, you know, your governments were very interested in putting a price on carbon pollution and that Murdoch-owned outlets pushed very, very hard to make sure that that didn't happen. And so I was quite surprised um, when I looked at some of News Corp's um, climate change disclosures around that time, because the company says in those disclosures that it actually considers a carbon price to be a very good and effective way of fighting climate change. And and the company even stresses that in in the U.S. it had actually advocated for this type of policy. Um, it had worked with different public opinion researchers in order to find out an effective way of communicating the benefits of such a policy. And that in jurisdictions all over the world, News Corp thought that it was pretty likely that it would have to face um, some sort of carbon pricing in at least one of the countries it operated in. And so one of the reasons News Corp said in these documents um, that it was studying carbon pricing and taking its own climate risk more seriously was that if a carbon price were to come in in a serious way, then News Corp would be in a better position than its competitors. And so the whole time it was attacking politicians in Australia over this, um, it actually considered that to be, you know, good and worthwhile policy. Jeff, what about the role that uh, Rupert Murdoch's children have played in all of this and the company's position on climate change? I mean, that that's an interesting part of this story. And I, I'm, I, I don't, I don't, have any you know special access to 
to the Murdoch family or, or, or special knowledge of the, the dynamics um, in that family. But what, what I heard again and again when I was doing this story is that the reason Rupert Murdoch seemed to get suddenly interested in climate change starting around 2006, 2007, probably had a bit to do with his son, James Murdoch. And, and so at the time, um, people told me that, um, you know, James was, was in favor with his father and, um, James was also becoming more and more interested in climate change and sustainability. And apparently a bit of that influence rubbed off on Rupert Murdoch. And, and in 2006, um, he held a meeting for News Corp executives and other people associated with the company at this fancy resort in California. And they actually had um, Al Gore come to that and do a presentation of his film, An Inconvenient Truth. And, and so people, people said at the time, you know, that, that was likely due in part to, to, to James's influence on his dad. I mean, there were, there were a whole bunch of, of other factors that go into that. But I, I think the family dynamic is, is significant here. It's interesting you mentioned that part of the um, of of the conference where they did the filming of Inconvenient Truth because your article covers this that the you know an Australian leading commentator Andrew Bolt one of the you know jewels in the News Corp Australia crown got up and essentially got into a Barney as people hedge with. Um, with Al Gore about it. From your perspective, you know, you're in the US um, and, and you've looked at this now, do you almost see any difference between, um, I guess, the, the almost like the different arms or the different um, uh, parts of News Corp based on, on countries? Because the thing that I kind of come back to in this is that Australia, you know, Australia's commentators, the coverage <laughs> of Australia, um, of in climate change in Australia, seems to have even lagged behind or has been even more, I guess, regressive than elsewhere. Well, you need to watch some more Fox News. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I know Fox isn't explicitly owned um, by News Corp anymore, but it's it's still an, an important part of, of Murdoch's overall empire and I, I think that the type of 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 climate denial and, and obstructionism in terms of climate coverage that you guys are seeing in Australia um, is is definitely comparable to what outlets like Fox News put out all the time and and an example of that that I touch on in the story is that um, we we had these these terrible wildfires up and down the west coast last year. And one of Fox News's top hosts, Tucker Carlson, did a segment um, basically ridiculing people for even suggesting that those fires could be linked to climate change. Um, and he said, this is what the Democrats want, want you to believe. It's all part of their propaganda. Um, but in fact, like the other examples um, I, I, I described, um, News Corp in those disclosures had called the wildfires um, potentially evidence of the, the physical impacts of climate change and something that the company wanted to take seriously. And um, 
as head of Fox Corporation, Lachlan Murdoch had said um, in a sustainability report around this time that he considered um, extreme weather to be one of the ways that the company could be potentially harmed by global temperature rise. And so, you know, there's like in Australia, there's there's a huge disconnect between what the company knew and was saying internally and then what its media outlets were presenting to the public. There's a parallel to this that is pretty front of mind, which is the difference between what Fox News and other News Corp um, publications and and broadcasting and and different stations have told their listeners on the COVID-19 vaccine and what they're making their staff do. Did, Did that comparison come up when you were writing this? I didn't look specifically at that comparison, but um, some people who've responded to the article have have spoken about that. And I, I think that's a totally worthwhile comparison. Okay, let me play devil's advocate for a second. Of course, you know, News Corp as a company has a kind of set direction, you know, executives set priorities and do things like this. But as a media company, it's expected to give airtime to a variety of views. And so, you know, would like it's it's not like, I guess, necessarily contradictory for um, the company to broadcast things that go against what the executives uh, are doing. And in fact, you know, people would argue that's probably a good thing. D- do you kind of see this as like, oh, this is just, you know, part of the, you know, beautiful, uh, uh, the workings of the free press? Or do you really see this as a, as a, as a kind of act of sheer hypocrisy? Well, I mean, I think you do raise an important point. We don't necessarily want the owners of companies to be, dictating um, what what outlets will cover or won't cover. But on the other hand, when it comes to something like the climate emergency, you can make a fair point that pushing the type of denial that News Corp outlets have pushed um, benefits a certain subset of very powerful people in society, such as the owners of, of coal or or oil and gas companies, and it it's creating a real public harm in terms of people not knowing the true reasons why there are these massive disasters that are that are claiming lives. Um, and and we've seen actually instances in the history of News Corp um, when when Rupert Murdoch at the top set a priority and then that actually influenced um, how some of his outlets covered the story. So in, in like the 2006-2007 era, um, there were papers in Australia who responded to Murdoch taking climate change more seriously by devoting actual constructive coverage to the issue. We saw that also... Um, in New York with, with outlets like the New York Post. And, and so I think, you know, at the end of the day, media outlets exist to inform and, and to serve the public and, and not to actively cause them harm. And, and so I think on an issue like climate change, um, you know, we, we do need outlets to cover it much more constructively than a lot of News Corp outlets have been doing. 
Yeah, and I, I think the pushback to this idea that there's a, you know, it's just one voice out of the many of the, the opinions that are presented is if you're watching these top hosts, you know, the Tucker Carlson's, the Andrew Bolts in Australia, you're not getting a variety of perspectives. You know, Andrew Bolt isn't bringing on someone who is a climate change denier and then bringing on someone who's like, you know what, we should blow up every, you know, oil pipeline or something, you know, far, far, I guess, um, environmentalist. It really kind of is one editorial perspective that seems to come out of the top. And that is due to the fact that, um, you know, like this kind of stuff uh, appears to serve the network and its and, and its and its goal of of bringing in viewers and keeping them engaged very very well. So I mean, this, this is grim. <laughs> I think often these conversations that we have about News Corp and its influence and, and some of these like um, areas can end up being a bit depressing. What do you think is going to happen from here, Jeff? You know, you've looked at now fifteen years of 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 changing perspectives from the company and the way you kind of laid out is that actually you know Rupert Murdoch was probably more active and and more vocal about it earlier on as kind of step back and has been unable or at least unwilling to reel in his on-air personalities where do you see things going from here I mean it's it's really hard to say but something that I found super interesting to see was um, some of News Corp's Australian outlets now committing to cover climate change in in a much more um, constructive way leading up to the the Glasgow climate talks later this fall. And and that that seemed to come about pretty suddenly, but I, I think it, it reflects the fact that um, public opinion on climate change, you know, despite the best efforts of people and outlets that spread disinformation, is is really changing in some fundamental ways and and very fast. Um, you know, we've seen here in the U.S. it was it was a summer of of record wildfires and then hurricanes on the East Coast, and 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 so huge numbers of people who never really thought too hard about what climate change could mean for them are now you know literally having their basements flooded or houses being burned down and it's it's simply not tenable anymore to spread the idea that these events have no relation to the oil gas and coal that we're burning and and so news corp is is always going to be sort of um, at the back of the pack in, in terms of what its outlets are pushing, you know, but it, it, it doesn't need to be as, as we're seeing with, with this, um, slight green rebrand, rebrand in Australia now. And, and some commentators have responded to that by saying, you know, if, if this is truly serious, then we, we need to see Fox news change its tune. We need to see other outlets. And I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not quite sure that it, it it will progress to that extent. But but if anything else, it shows you know the people who run these companies they they know public opinion and and they can definitely see that it's changing. Yeah, it's. Uh, we've spoken about that. Um that announcement and we, we were pretty pessimistic about it but i mean i guess the, the the grim like silver lining is that people you can't just deny climate change anymore um and, and that's unfortunate because the reality of what we have here but uh, at least we're seeing some 
action, even if it is minor. Uh, Jeff, if people wanted to see more of your reporting, what's the best way to find you online? Um, probably just to go to my Twitter by Googling Jeff Dimbicki. Great. Yeah, we'll um, pop that in the show notes as well. Jeff, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. That was US-based reporter Jeff Dembicki. You can find him on Twitter at Jeff Dembicki, which is at G-E-O-F-F-D-E-M-B-I-C-K-I. All right, that is us for this week again. Um, just your standard kind of housekeeping stuff. If you like this, if you even, you know, tolerate this podcast, hmm. but there's someone in your life who you think would enjoy it, please pass it on where, you know, we're just trying to use uh, word of mouth to expand and, and spread the good word about uh, News Corp and all its dealings. That's right. And you can uh, please, Jeffy, join our Facebook page. It's Murdocracy on Facebook, M-U-R-D-O-C-R-A-C-Y. Uh, lots of discussion already. We we post up all kinds of articles over there from Newscorp, from other people analyzing Newscorp, and lots of discussions already kind of started. And it's a fun place that we're developing into a community, and we're looking forward to seeing you there as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, hey, Sammy, good luck for uh, Jess's uh, podcast this week. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about it. <laughs> all right, bye for now. Bye. bye.